Welcome to another edition of the Insurance AUM Journal podcast. My name is Stuart Foley, and I'll be your host standing with you at the corner of insurance and asset management. Today, we're here to talk about complementary approaches to managing emerging market debt for insurance companies. Today, we're joined by Damien Boucher, CIO, EM Total Return Strategy at Finisterre Capital. Welcome, Damien. Thank you very much. And Nick Varco, Portfolio Manager of EM Strategies at Principal Global Advisors. Welcome, Nick. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being on, guys. It's great to have you. So, important topic, right? Insurance companies are starving for yield. We all know that. EMD is interesting because it offers a lot of yield and a lot of diversification characteristics. So, that's fine. But, you know, the markets have come a long way. So, What's your outlook on EMD today and how the EMD market, kind of two questions, how the EMD market has changed in recent years? We remain constructive on emerging markets. The market has evolved over the years, and we really like the support of technicals that emerging markets continue to offer, continued attractive relative value versus its developed market comparables. And really think that the EM fundamental recovery that we saw begin to occur in 2020 has some upside into 2021, led by strong growth out of Asia and in particular China. This growth is very supportive for commodities, particularly base metals, copper, and iron ore, and continue to think emerging markets looks attractive in this environment. So, Nick, how you come at this market is as an insurance investor U.S. dollar-based, higher quality, as I understand it, right? That working inside the world of insurance constraints is your daily job. That's correct. The constraints in particular really come down to ratings and looking for the best return on a risk-adjusted basis. The majority of what we will be doing will be investment-grade rated. In particular, it's probably something more like a 90% weighting towards investment-grade bonds. So that's really what drives our relative value. And in that regard, that's where we tend to look at it more versus what opportunities exist in developed markets and what can we deliver on an investment grade basis from an EM standpoint. And kind of on the other end of that, Damien, you operate in a total return unconstrained environment. Can you talk a little bit, what's your market commentary outlook and the recent changes in the last few years? Right. I mean, uh, I would echo Nick uh, to highlight that, you know, EMD remains often overlooked as an opportunity set for global investors when it comes to, you know, their search for yield, their need for diversification, which are very real investment needs these days. So it's a, a fact that our universe has broadened in scope, has improved in terms of depth, liquidity, availability of instruments, both cash instruments and derivatives. And so that makes for a very complete, you could say complex marketplace, but from which so many opportunities can be extracted. So, you know, uh, compared to what Nick does, I would actually be a, I would represent a, a complement to Nick's approach, which tends to be more balance sheet focused. And so, you know, Finisterre Capital would position themselves as a provider of solutions to insurance companies trying to come as close to the needs of an insurance company in terms of generating the right risk return profile with low volatility, emphasis on income, limitation of capital losses, but using a much wider opportunity set, which 
I mean, these days offers a lot of potential. I mean, we, yes, we remain positively minded towards EM debts out of the US election, out of this pandemic, but we are fully mindful that if you look back 15 years, your best friend has remained income throughout. There is no discussion about that, but your beta element, your capital gain element hasn't proven to be sustainable. And that's what we need to work on in our approach. You probably need uh, some element of tacticality in the way you, you manage those, those mandates. Now, you know, yes, we're going coming out of a pandemic, but it doesn't mean you know, it's a risk-free environment for all of us for risky assets globally. So we need to pay attention to the parameters of this recovery, what it means for future policy moves from the US. We have to adjust our growth inflation expectations versus the attitude of the Fed. And, you know, these days, you know, whether the rise in U.S. yields is driven by real yields or break-even yields is a major issue we have to contend with. So all of those are challenges that we need to address. Yeah, I mean, it's huge. I think you're exactly right. So the one thing I think a lot of times, whether, you know, you want to admit it or not, I think a lot of investors, insurance investors, perceive a higher degree of volatility and risk in EMD, right? And I would say that is largely a misperception, but it's there. So what risk do you see in the market? I'll go to Nick first. What risk do you see and what's the most effective way to mitigate it? And then we'll talk to Damien just a second about the same, same kind of question. A great question. And I'll start with just the changes in the makeup of emerging markets and in particular with an investment grade focus over the last five to 10 years. This is a market where you've seen significant changes, where you've seen countries like Brazil, Russia, Turkey, and South Africa fall from investment grade to below investment grade or high yield. We've seen Russia come back and regain investment grade ratings, but those are four meaningful issuers that were great sources of spread and yield for insurance companies in that investment grade realm. We've now seen that change a little bit in that they're not as frequent issuers. They're obviously still out there, but not as frequent issuers. And we've seen significant issuance in the last couple of years from different sources, namely China and the Middle East. And with those issuers now in the market, they bring different risks, but there are also different ratings as well. You see significantly higher ratings from both of those regions, but the Middle East, very highly rated countries that offer decent spreads and decent yields in particular over their developed market counterparts. So different regions of the world, different spreads, but completely different makeups from what we've seen historically there. So Damien, same question with a little bit of a twist, right? So a lot of people would say, or I've heard the argument, hey, China's not an emerging economy. Is China EM? Should it qualify as EM? So what's your view of the market risk at this? And to Nick's point, China specifically. Right. I mean, okay. So you obviously, I mean, my argument would always be that, you know, being a total return, very active investor in EMD and focused on, you know, delivering a desired risk return profile. Obviously, I would, I would answer that uh, you can't paint all EMD with the same brush. And, you know, if you think about the two main traditional asset classes in this space, hard currency debt, whether sovereign or corporate, that's a credit asset class. So I would, I would argue that it's a fairly low volatility asset class on an ongoing basis, but it suffers from regular gap risks, sudden liquidity crisis. And the question becomes, you know, how do you manage those you know, sudden drawdowns in this asset class? That's been the typical feature of how crises occur on the hard currency credit space in EMD. 
but not so much about volatility. On the contrary, when it comes to local currencies, you're dealing with a fairly liquid, a fairly deep asset class, which has expanded a lot or in terms of investability over the, the past few years, but which exhibits perennial volatility. And arguably from an interest standpoint, it's not the most optimal place to be in terms of capital charges either. So you have to use these various asset classes in the right way in a portfolio if you want to remain efficient from a risk return standpoint, but also from a capital charge standpoint. And the answer I would make is, you know, local currency has to be used for what it is. It's a great tactical booster, a great provider of capital gains, a very rewarding asset class for your macro views, much more so than external debt. But at the same time, it can be a strategic allocation in your portfolio. So, you know, you have to juggle with these uh, imperatives, uh, but at the end of the day, you know, what matters is very much what risk return do you want to extract and how do you manage to build the right portfolio to deliver just that? That's a great answer. And I think, it, I don't know if my next question is going to be, you may have already answered part of it, but one of the complexities of EMD is navigating hard currency versus local, corporate debt versus sovereign. What are your views to both of you, but to what are your views of the segments inside of EMD? Maybe I'll, I'll take that first, but we have a strong view that these distinctions are fairly artificial. And that, that's interesting. Uh, I think that's really To segue to your previous question on risk, we haven't discussed default risk, right? Which, of course, should be very important from a, an insurer standpoint. But, you know, it, there's an interesting feature about default in emerging market, the fact that even though emerging markets don't necessarily exhibit higher default tricks over the long run on average than you know, the US credit and high yield or European high yield markets, we do tend to see peaks in default around global crisis. But interestingly, a lot of the systemic default risk in EMs tends to aggregate around specific sovereign situations. So when you have a large portfolio of corporates you're still very sensitive, highly sensitive to mostly sovereign risk. And to your last question, you know, then the artificial distinction between sovereign debt and corporate debt is just about the way you analyze the issuer. But in terms of behavior, we think there is a continuum in terms of the degree of sovereignness you have in a given name's behavior from the pure sovereign to the quasi-sovereign name to a large corporate which has a systemic importance for that country. At the other end of the spectrum, you have the purely private high-yield company, which has the lowest degree of sovereign synchronicity, if I, if I may say this way. And the same holds for, um, that's mostly for, for default risk, yeah. So everybody talks about ESG these days, right? We've got articles on ESG, we've done some podcasts. How do you think about ESG standards, or is it a factor, in EM countries? I mean, there's no standard. I think we're all struggling for a standard period. But how do you think about ESG standards in EM countries? Sure, I could start there. Um, that ESG considerations is something that we have utilized and incorporated into our analysis for the last few years now. It is becoming more prevalent in the emerging markets. We are beginning to see it more frequently. It is in pockets of the world, maybe more prevalent in, in Europe to start, but we're definitely seeing it more from a US standpoint, from an insurance company standpoint here. Maybe they've been a little later to the game 
per se than, than some of the developed markets, but we are beginning to see that analysis come in. And we do lose maybe on our side a, a more definitive set of criteria. In particular, from a sovereign standpoint, we've been asking the questions, we've been seeing this you know, posed our way more often. We just don't have necessarily an accurate and equal comparison yet. We do have it a little bit on the corporate side because we've got the, the structure or the framework from some of our DM counterparts. As Damien mentioned a little bit earlier, we do see a little bit different on the corporate side that you do see more conglomerate or family ownership structures in EM than you would in DM. And that's going to affect uh, the G score in the ESG component. Um, and it really becomes even a little more unique in that we tend to have a little bit more on the exporters front. We see more commodity names here. And we also see more corporates out of China, which presents a very unique opportunity or a unique situation because a lot of their names, a lot of the corporations we'll see there will be higher on the investment grade rating scale by different ESG considerations on a governance standpoint and on a carbon and emissions footprint as well. Well, I mean, I think you make a good point, right? You know, you talk about not having a standard in EM. I think it's very arguable that there's not a standard period. We all want a number, right? I want, what's my ESG score? Well, it isn't that easy, right? As you know, I mean, you're talking about a host of criteria. You've got, what's the G when you've got a Chinese corporate what is it? How do you figure it out? So I think that it's interesting that it, it's definitely on your radar screen and it's something that you think about. Damien, how do you address ESG? Is it a factor for your strategies? Can you talk just a little bit about that? It is a factor. I mean, we've long been convinced that, you know, a government that's heavily corrupted, that mistreats their citizen has a fairly shorter shelf life. And, you know, as fixed income investors, you know, we're going to buy bonds which pay us back in 10 years' time. We want to be paid in 10 years. We want the country to be solvent then. And the same goes for corporates, corporates which engage in risky environmental projects with massive litigation risk. I mean, we've had examples in Brazil in the recent past. When it starts to become a problem, then you're sued by both Brazilian and U.S. authorities. So, you know, clearly these are things which, as an investor, fully align with our interests. Now, the question becomes, how do you quantify that? And what kind of attitude do you want to have to that, especially if you want to start making an impact? Because we're convinced that we are in a unique seat to be able to impact on behaviors. I mean, through our interaction with governments, with corporates all year long. Yes, we are in a unique position to bring a message home to these people. So the question becomes quantifying first at the issuer level, at the portfolio level, and the you know, it's still an evolving landscape. You know, we've made some choices at Finisterre and PGI to onboard certain scoring systems. So we're able to provide that. But it's more about the qualitative assessment that the analyst makes as well. Yeah, absolutely. And eventually, it's what you choose as an attitude. I mean, we think, for example, that in EMs, rather than an absolute score, it would be best to reward the would-be improvers and punish the ones which are relatively well scored, but who are doing nothing to present their full from grace. So, you know, it could be the case that, you know, no one is going to be like Sweden in EMs, right? So you <laughs> yeah, probably want to reward a very badly scored country who's doing real efforts or an issuer who's doing real efforts to improve on ESG. And so we're 
that's what we're looking at in our scoring system as well. A more dynamic approach to reward improvement and punish uh, deterioration. Yeah, I mean, I think there's two things there, right? I mean, it just makes sense that paying attention to ESG from the issuer makes a good investment, right? It's arguable that that is good for investing regardless of what the ESG score is. It's a good investment characteristic of when you're looking out for that. Insurance companies are uniquely positioned because long run, paying attention to ESG impacts the liability side of their balance sheet, right? I mean, extreme weather events certainly is detrimental to the insurance industry, you know, as just straight up cause and effect. So it seems like insurance companies, and I think you're seeing a growing number of insurance GA become PRI signatories, for example, and really take that seriously. So I want to kind of just a little bit of a different, and I think given the fact that you guys are in two different two different ends of the spectrum with regard to insurance constraints, maybe ask each of you the same thing. So with various currency exposures, right? Nick, how do you deal with hedging, derivative management, and currency translation risk? And then we'll have Damien kind of touch on the same thing. From an EM standpoint, when it comes to U.S. insurance investing, we're very mindful of currency risk. And um, obviously, when we're involved in the corporates, uh, quasi-sovereigns and sovereigns, uh, it's a significant consideration. At our portfolio level right now, the hedging and, and derivative management and managing of currency isn't a part of our active management in our insurance strategies right now. The majority focus of our insurance company has tended to be U.S. dollar-denominated assets, and it hasn't necessarily delved into local currency at this juncture or potentially even looked at, at hedging. It has primarily been more of a buy and maintain strategy. And if we had seen corporate quasi or sovereign situations evolve to the point where they had gone below an investment grade or moved to high yield, our strategy based on our current constraints had been more to view an exit opportunity as opposed to a hedging strategy. So as currently constructed or with our current constraints, we don't typically get too heavily involved in currency hedging, derivative management, or hedging. Thank you. Damien, how about you? Can you talk a little bit about uh, hedging, derivative management, and so forth? Yeah. So as you mentioned, we're at the other end of the spectrum versus Nick on this one because we're actively involved with currencies. Now that you know, currencies are a huge part, as I said, you know, we want currencies for what they are, which are a tactical opportunity, even if you know, within currency, not everything is volatile. I mean, we have perfectly, uh, you know, sustainable opportunities in the local currency space, whether local bonds in Peru or Egyptian treasury bills, which wouldn't really react much to market movements, which are, you know, great income opportunities, etc. But no, when we take, when we decide to take active currency risk, we take it, we don't hedge it. I mean, but it's true that the portfolio will be quite active. As such, we'll be using a lot of derivatives, not complex ones, but simple ones, interest rate swaps, credit default swaps, FX forwards to materialize currency risks on the long or the short side. Now, I would say the bulk of our use of derivatives is going to be with a purpose to decrease risk. You know, As I said, our value proposition is to deliver the bulk of the market upside, 90% or more, for half the volatility and half of the downside, potentially. So very asymmetric risk return profile, which relies a lot on income. 
as a primary source of performance. So the starting point is always is come for us. So the use of derivative around that is essentially in order to help us deliver this risk return profile. So, you know, we are not a portfolio like ours in an insurance context would be subject to potentially look through, but it would change a lot. But hopefully we would come as close as possible to the expectation of an insurer, which is to mitigate the risk, mitigate drawdowns. And part of that is about derivative usage as well. Yes. So if we can just real quick from each of you, and then I have a surprise question, so don't worry. What would you encourage as an insurance general account investor when they're looking at EMD in 2021? What should they be looking for? My take is, you know, they shouldn't be afraid. I mean, the trend over the past few years after every crisis has been for strategic investors, especially asset liability managers at the global level, to step up their average EMD allocation. Why? The recognition for EMD being a great source of yield and diversification is now near universal. Now, the pressure is proportionate to the level of yields you can get in your home market. And I must say, when I look at the allocation between European insurers and US insurers, European insurers are maybe more advanced, probably for the wrong reasons, which is that they've been looking for yields for longer yeah. You know, in a European context. So the US insurance community may come to that point and EMD is a great answer to that. That's great. So I think, you know, in terms of risk rewards and outlook, we're, we're still very positively minded. We think this is a universe that can provide a, a lot of upside for insurance companies in a risk controlled manner. And that's essentially what Nick and I are focused on providing even do we operate at different ends of the spectrum and different positions in the balance sheet. Very cool. So here's the surprise question. You ready? I ask this question at the end of every podcast. And those of you, I'm sure you guys have listened to all of them. So you know it's coming. Here it is. So we'll start with Damien. Here we are. Now, it's your graduation from your undergraduate university. So you're about... Mm, 21. And you're looking smooth. You got your mortarboard on, you got your robe on, you're looking good. So you get up on stage and you walk across and the president of the college or university hands you the diploma, gives you a firm handshake and wishes you well. And you come down the stage on the other side, you come down the steps and you meet you today. What do you tell your 21-year-old self? Right. I would tell them to follow your instinct and stick to what you believe in all along. That's what I did. You know, I married myself to emerging markets 30 years ago. I stuck through all crises. And, you know, you need, you need conviction and passion. God, that's great advice. In these markets. So it's a conviction and passion about what emerging markets really are. It's less about loving finance to be an emerging market player. It's more about loving these countries, understanding them for what they are, uh, in a political context, economic context, and a human context. That's a great universe to go through, to live on and up. I mean, you're, you're always surprised. Every morning is a new day. Uh, so that's what I would tell them. God, that's great. I teach, right? I teach students and I love it because they need to hear that. So, okay, Nick, so it's your turn in the hot seat. 
It's you. Here you are. You're at the University of Northern Iowa. I'm a Mizzou guy, so we're from the same neck of the woods. You know, the farther you are, you're away from home, the bigger home is. So I'm counting you as home. So there you are. You're 21. And if you're as clueless as I was, you needed some advice. And you run in to Nick today. What do you tell your 21-year-old self? I, I think this is a great question on the heels of the pandemic that we're coming out of, frankly. And I've been at principal almost 20 years now, straight out of university. And prior to March 1st of 2020, had never worked a day from home in my entire life and haven't worked a day in the office since. And it really leads me to believe that no two days that we are going to spend in the markets are going to be the same, but you have to draw on your past experiences in the market to kind of pick where things are going to go next. You have to use that analysis from where you've been to anticipate where we're going while also realizing that this crisis is completely different than what we saw, you know, during the great financial crisis. And it's different than what we saw during the telecom crisis, right when I started my career 20 years ago. So it really comes down to the idea that you've got to be mindful of where you've come, but uh, be very excited about where the future is going to take you and really be mindful of the risk and the return that it presents itself. That's good stuff. Thank you very, very much. Both of you guys, thanks for being on. Thank Thank you. you. Yeah, so that is Opportunities Across the EMD Spectrum with Nick Varco and Damien Boucher. My name is Stuart Foley. If you like what we're doing, please like us on all the major podcast platforms. If you have ideas for future podcasts, please email us at podcast at insuranceaum.com. I'm Stuart Foley, and this is the Insurance AUM Journal Podcast. Podcast.